Amen. You may be seated. I really like that synth, by the way. I came in earlier and I was like, man, it's like 80s day in the sanctuary, but I know it's back in style now. I went to Bunbury and all the bands are using synths now. So uh, we're on the cutting edge at CHPC. I don't know why people are laughing. It's, I haven't started the jokes yet. Um, well, this week we've got Genesis chapter 1, in case our subliminal... Oh, and the releasing the captives. There we go. Uh, children's grades K through 3 are uh, dismissed for children to worship out that door. All right. <clears throat> so we're in uh, Genesis chapter 1, and our uh, subliminal messaging is on the screen. We're doing the Gospel Project which started today in the middle hour and will be going for the entire school year. Children uh, can go to their normal age classes. Every adult class is a table at the Gospel Project, uh, and I think it went really well this morning. We had almost 100 people in there uh, discussing, diving deeper. So if you were there, the sermon will sound somewhat familiar. Hopefully I've done enough to make it interesting for you to hear twice. Um, and we'll continue next week. So I'd encourage you, if you just showed up at 11 this week, Try to come in an hour earlier next week and uh, give the Gospel Project um, another chance. So we'll be following this just for the first three weeks from the sermon series. Then we'll start a new sermon series, but the class will march on. And so today we're dealing with Genesis chapter 1, which uh, I will read to you. It will be on the screens, and it's in your pew Bibles on what I assume is page 1. Um, I didn't double-check. I should have between services, but... Um, is it on page one? Someone have that? Sometimes they start the numbering funny, but... Okay, it is. Three and a half years theological education not wasted on me. Genesis 1 on page one. And it contains some of the most famous opening words of any document anywhere. And just out of curiosity, I decided to look up what are some other famous opening lines. And so there's a uh, group called the American Book Review that released their list of the top 100 most famous first lines in literature. And I'm not even going to read all 100 to you, but um, here's a few that I thought were interesting. And what I want you to hear is in these famous first lines, whether you know what they're from or not, I'll tell you, just think about what this first line says about the work you're about to read. So here's the first one. It is a truth universally acknowledged. That a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. That's from Jane Austen from Pride and Prejudice. And uh, now I haven't read the rest of the book. My wife has, and I take her word for it, that the rest of it keeps on pace with that tone. It is, uh, there's a little hint of sarcasm in that first line, and the humor continues throughout the book. But try this one out, this first line of, of book says this, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So every happy family is alike, but every unhappy family has their own unhappy way about them. That's from uh, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And that tells you something about the book too. Based on that sentence, do you think the book is about to be about a happy family or an unhappy family? Well, if happy families are all alike, I don't think you're going to hear a story about them. You're going to hear a story about an unhappy family. Here's another one. 
that I think uh, more people will have read. First sentence. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His name. The boy was called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's from C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And so Eustace becomes a character in the book, and he's not a very pleasant one, as the first sentence suggests. Uh, it's a terrible name, and he almost deserves it. Um, and then the final one, which we'll be focusing on today, is, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Quite a first sentence. And so the question that I want you to wrestle with is what question is the writer trying to answer in Genesis 1? What question or questions? And the reason we read these other famous sentences is because the first sentence tells you something about what's coming next. And so what do we learn about what's coming next based on the first sentence of Genesis 1? Now, and I'm, we're kind of playing Jeopardy here, right? We're trying to figure out what the question is based on the answer. Um, but I had a youth group for most of my 20s. I was a youth pastor. And my youth group was mostly non-Christians or people who came, but they didn't remain non-Christians mostly. But uh, they came to Christ. But most of them came from non-Christian homes and had no contact with the Bible, were not familiar with Genesis. And so this was actually a really fun experiment because I got to read this with people for the first time they'd ever read it. And so what I did is uh, took... The text of Genesis 1, copied and pasted it, removed the verse numbers, removed the captions, removed anything that tells you what to think about what you're reading. And said, here's just the text, and what I want you to do is read this, you know, by yourself or with each other, and figure out which questions this writer is trying to answer. Which which questions does this text supply the answer to? And everyone came back and said, well, it's trying to tell us who created the earth— And why the earth was created. Everyone agreed on that. And as we'll read it, I think you'll see that. Now the problem is, a lot of people in that group came in with questions they wanted answered. uh, Like most 21st century Western post-enlightenment, scientifically minded Americans. They wanted to know uh, how it was created and when. And so this is the potential tension um, that that exists with our modern reading of Genesis 1, uh, the tension between how we read the Bible and what's in it and what science uh, wants to uh, contribute to the conversation. So science is really only equipped to answer the questions of how and when. And I'm not going to tell you in a 20-minute sermon uh, how to reconcile all of those things. But what I'm going to tell you is the text is concerned with who created the earth and why, and that is what we will concern ourselves with this morning. And I'm going to borrow an analogy. This is not mine, but I am repurposing it for my purposes. That there is such a thing as multiple explanations and deeper and varying levels of explanation. And the example is this. If there's a pot of water boiling on the stove and someone comes to me and says, Mike, why is there water boiling on the stove? I can say, well, the heat is pushing the molecules apart, and the faster they move, that you know, eventually the water reaches boiling point, and the bubbles start coming up, and the steam is going, and that's true. What I, that's a true explanation of why the water is boiling. However, the answer they were looking for is that I wanted a cup of tea. And so you see how those are both answers to that question, but one of them is answering. They're answering uh, different questions on, or the same question on different levels, and the level that 
the Bible is trying to address is the more important one uh, in this instance, which is who created the earth and why. So would you join me in prayer as we prepare to read God's word? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your written word. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would move, uh, the same Holy Spirit that wrote this would move in our hearts and is alive in every Christian, uh, that you would stir up us, stir up in us our affection for you, and that you would uh, guide our reading of your word, that you would lead us to your truth, and that you would apply it to our hearts and minds. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 1. Verses 1 through 13. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There is evening and there was morning the third day. This is the word of the Lord. Now we'll continue. The the next section goes into humanity in Genesis chapter 2, and that will be uh, next Sunday. In fact, Daryl will be preaching again next Sunday, and we'll also have uh, the 10 a.m. hour. But this morning, there are three things we want to observe from this text. And starting in verses 1 and 2, now... If you've been a Christian for a while, if you've grown up in a church, some of these points may not seem profound to you, but I promise you that they are. The first point is this. God created everything. Right? Now, if I pitched that to you yesterday, you would say, I think you need to work on your sermon a little bit longer. That's uh, not very exciting. But when this was written, and even now, this stands in contrast to many religions. In fact, if you... Ever had to read in high school about uh, Greek and Roman mythologies? What's the pattern there? They have multiple deities. And there's a god of, you know, god of love. There's a god of fire. There's a god of water. There's a god of... So there's different gods delegated to... Because even as they were writing these deities, they couldn't fathom that one god could create all of this. But that's what the Bible says happened. In contrast to ancient polytheism... Uh, which had different deities over each aspect of creation, the Bible starts by saying that no one God created everything that is. And not only did he create everything, he created everything out of nothing. And so there was nothing, and then there was everything, and one God did it. And even modern contemporary religions that believe in one God don't agree that it came out of nothing. Some of them 
say, uh, well, there were pre-existing materials and God assembled them and made everything that is, but there, he didn't start with nothing. And the Bible says, no, he started with nothing and now there's everything. And so what this means, the only thing this can mean is that everything and everyone owes their existence to this God who created everything. And so what does it mean to owe your existence to him? It means uh, all intention, all purpose, everything uh, is attributed to God and comes from God. And so in a, in a sense, trying to find meaning in life apart from God is, um, you, you can pick your metaphor. In fact, please pick a metaphor because I had trouble picking one. But the one I was coming up with was, it's like, Trying to find meaning apart from the one who created you and created your meaning is like trying to add a second floor onto your house when the first floor hasn't been built yet. It's, you're like trying to expand on a project when you haven't got the foundation of it. And the foundation of it is that God created everything and everyone with a unique purpose. And so you can't find that purpose apart from the designer. And so uh, John Calvin, who's a, a famous theologian said it this way. He says, there is not one blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. Not one blade of glass, not one grass, not one shade or color that you can encounter that's not intended to make us rejoice. And so what this means is that everything has purpose just crammed into it, just uh, overflowing with purpose. And it all comes from one God. And, And as I was Talking about this at first service, I remembered that there's this, uh, you know, we do, we have a lot of uh, assessments and things like that that we like in our uh, Presbyterian church. And one of them is the spiritual pathways assessment. I think it's from Willow Creek. Is anyone familiar with that? And it says, you know, this is how I access, you know, God. It's either through meditation or through reading the word or through evangelism. Uh, and one of them is uh, I encounter God through nature. And when I took that test, I got a zero in that category. I don't, I can't just go sit on a rock in the middle of the forest and feel like I'm experiencing God. Um, in fact, we went to the Pacific Northwest and we were visiting national parks for vacation and my wife and her family all went hiking and I sat inside and read a 1200 page postmodern nonlinear fiction novel that was supposed to be one of the best of the 20th century and we all had a great vacation. And, but one time I was, um, lovingly forced to go on a silent retreat, which is also not how I usually connect with God, and was challenged to go sit out in nature, and I wasn't allowed to take a book with me, which is what I do in nature, and I prefer to do it indoors, but uh, that's my compromise outdoors. And so I said, well, what am I supposed to do with myself out there? And the woman who's facilitating, she said, well, she said, go outside, and this was April or May in Cincinnati, and she said, Try to count every shade of green that you see when you're outside and just let that sink in. So I went outside and I was like, okay, there's about three and (laughs) ready to move on. But then I saw a leaf that had fallen like right next to me and the leaf alone had seven or eight different shades of green. And then I started to count all the different shades of green. And then I felt this sense of awe. And I was like, oh, this is what people are talking about when they. And so I'll write a book about it and that'll be my compromise. Um, But that is the level of intention 
that God has created in every tiny blade of grass, every leaf in all creation. And if that is true for that, how much more true is it for every person that he has created? Every human on this planet has that level. So everything that was created, everything that is created, everything that will be created is the work of God and has that level of intention. So when we say God created everything, that's what we mean. God created everything uh, with uh, every attribute it has, including its purpose. And so the second point might sound as underwhelming at first as the first point, which is this, that God created everything good. And so we have to wonder when we read a text like this, and so I may have pointed this out to you before, but in the ancient world, one of the two of the most precious commodities were paper and ink. And so anytime they can save space on paper and ink, they do so. But in this passage, it says multiple times, again and again and again, that God did this and it was good. By the way, if you want to answer that question of how it was created, it does technically tell you how in here, but it's not an answer that will be scientifically satisfying. God says something and then it happens. He says it and he says, let there be light and there's light. And that's that's how it happened. Which this is just to show you the raw power and the sovereignty of God over everything is for him to say something is the same as it being done. Which, when we when we get to the gospel, when he says that you are my sons because of Jesus, that's done. When you're the children of God because of the work of Jesus on the cross, it is the same as him saying, let there be light and there's light. It's just done. And so the idea, though, that everything was created good stands in contrast to many philosophies and world religions that look to condemn the material world. The ancient Greeks, for example, thought that the physical world, you know, stuff that we can touch and interact with, and even the human body, uh, were lesser or inconsequential compared to the spiritual reality. But we have a God who is making the physical realm in Genesis chapter 1. He makes everything in it and he calls it good. So we don't have that option of splitting physical and spiritual and saying one's good, one's bad, one's lesser, one's better. Uh, God made it all and called it all good. And so that actually does stand. And so here's the implication for that though. Is we ought not call or treat something as bad when God calls it good. So we shouldn't call something bad that God calls good. And even if you can get yourself to call things good, you can't treat things bad that God calls good. And so this is the foundation for all kinds uh, of modern ethics that in the 21st century in America we really enjoy. So whether we're talking about environmentalism or animal protection or human rights, they all flow from this idea that there is one creator who deems his creation good and therefore worthy of protection, worthy of advocacy. And so, I mean, you could even ask the other way, how can one advocate for those beliefs, those rights, without this belief that God created everything and that he created everything good? And so the author of Genesis wants us to know that God is sovereign and that he's powerful and that he pre-exists creation, yet... He's intimately involved with his creation. And he calls his creation good and he stands back to admire his creation. And so when I was thinking about how all of these uh, modern ethics 
flow from Genesis chapter 1, uh, there's a quote that, that uh, came to me. So my wife and I, one of our favorite shows is The West Wing. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It was on NBC for like seven years, and now it's on Netflix. That's how we've seen it. Uh, so it's one of our favorite shows, and it's one where we, when we finish it, we just start it back over in season one. And uh, as you might guess, it's about the president of the United States. It's a fictional president, but it's set in 2000, 2007. And at the end of the first season, the president is addressing a group of college students, and he says this. This is his quote. We hold these truths to be self-evident, they said. That all men are created equal. Strange as it may seem, that was the first time in history that anyone ever bothered to write that down. End quote. And he's referencing the Declaration of Independence. Now, the interesting thing to me, he makes a point that that's the first time someone bothered to write that all men are created equal. But even then, it wasn't true. That We weren't living as if it was true. Because you didn't see... Women get the right to vote in that same country until 1920, and you didn't see the Civil Rights Act until 1965, almost 200 years later. And so even when we see these truths that God bestows dignity and worth, and he does it equally across all his creation, we don't live like that's true. We still struggle to live like that's true. You can watch the news every single week. And see the struggle for us to believe what God has said about his creation. That it is good and that he has created uh, humanity equally. And so this has been true since the beginning. But the reality of it is something we still struggle to live into. And the the third thing that I'd like to point out this morning. Which is also in our gospel project. And I hinted at this last week when we did the road to Emmaus. If you remember that. Jesus shows us how to read the Old Testament. And he says... Look for me there. You know, that if you understood the Old Testament, you would understand me. And so that's what it does. We start in Genesis 1, but now we're going to connect it to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15. I said 18, and that's what they have on the slides probably. But I'm going to go ahead and read through 20. And what this section is, these five verses, this is actually an ancient hymn. This is hymn from uh, the first century, which I don't know, maybe Daryl can put music to it. Uh, I haven't quite found the rhythm of it yet. But this is, uh, I'll urge you, this is one thing that I repeat every time it comes up. If you have your own Bible, uh, one thing that I circle or underline every time I see it is the phrase, all things. And I'll explain why after I read it. But this is Colossians 1, 15 to 18. He, and this is referring to Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, the reason that's important here is it shows all things. All things, do you think that means some things or all things? All things. All things means all things. And when we talk about the scope of God's creation, we're talking about 
all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things. And in Colossians, it's connecting Jesus with that act of creation. And so in, in contrast to, um, there's a theological term for a group of people known as deists with a D instead of theists with a TH. And a deist is someone who believes that God created everything. They might even believe that one God created all things, but they see him as more of someone who they kind of design it and you wind up the clock and then you set it down and walk away. Not personally invested in it, not personally interested in it. Uh, just someone who uh, established law and order and then backs away and is disinterested in the results. But in contrast to deism, what we see here is that not only God the Father, but God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are involved in the act of creation from uh, eternity past and are intimately involved in a plan of redemption for that creation from the beginning. And so we see that Jesus rules over all creation. So you see it here. Uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by him, all things were created for him. Uh, all things were created. Um, all things were created through him and for him and by him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So it's not just that he created them and walked away, but they all hold together in Jesus. And then it goes forward to redemption. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, which is the hope of Christianity. It's the resurrection of the dead. That in everything he might be a preeminent. For in him, Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And so the scope of creation, uh, the scope of redemption, uh, is as big as creation itself. And so therefore, here's the implication, and this is important, there is no area of the Christian life that is off limits for redemption, for sanctification, for spiritual growth. There is no compartmentalizing your life where Christianity and where Jesus doesn't lay claim to that part of your life and say, that is mine as well. And so this kind of flies in the face of what I hear from a lot of uh, American preachers, which I would call uh, Christian spiritual reductionism, where we say, well, Christianity is controlling the spiritual part of my life, and I take care of the spiritual part of my life Sundays at 11 a.m., and, you know, Wednesday is at 6 p.m. And that's that's my spiritual life. And then the rest of my life, you know, I do with as I please. And that's not what all things means. We all agreed on that just a minute ago. I heard you. And so Jesus sits at the throne of not just the spiritual part of reality, but of all reality, all creation holds together and all redemption is found in him. And so here's the... The final thought, it's because we have been given new life through the Son of God, we honor him in our stewardship of creation as we help others see their purpose in him. So this means three things, and then I'm finished. First, because we believe in the God who created everything out of nothing with an eternal plan to glorify his Son, Jesus, because we believe all that, one, we can find meaning and purpose in every aspect of creation, which means we need to show proper care and respect for everything that God has created and everything that God has called good. Second, we can help others recognize their purpose 
each person, uh, whether they are Christian or not, and whether they've realized it yet in their life or not, will have some sense that there is more to life. There is some uh, sense of significance uh, that there has to be something more. And you can hear this in popular... I was raised in the 90s. YouTube was really big and still haven't found what I'm looking for. That song comes to mind. Um, or if we go all the way back, I quoted him earlier in the beginning, but C.S. Lewis went uh, most of... Uh, his, uh, the first half of his life without becoming a Christian. And when he reflected on it later, he said, I realized that for me there was an appetite, a craving for heaven. And he said, and for the first time in my life, I realized that that was a craving, you know, everything else I have a craving for, there is something that exists to satisfy that craving. You know, if I'm hungry for an apple, there's such a thing as apples and I can go have one. And that craving is satisfied. But he said, if there is this craving, this longing for meaning and significance, and this this idea that there must be something more, then there must be something more out there. And eventually he came to Christ. And so each person has this intuitive sense, and we can help others see that. But finally, we can recognize that Jesus as the one true God who is worthy of worship, surrender, and service He not only created everything that is, but he also redeemed it and will come again to reign over it. And so you and I, as we go out from here, we can't give people purpose. We can't give people meaning. But what, but Jesus can. And what we can do is we can share Jesus with other people. We can connect people to Jesus. We can point them to the one who gives us 